This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks about the construct of life without parole and what it means for someone's mental health. And this is really in light of this effort we see by Chris Watts to file an appeal to overturn his conviction or to get his sentence reduced. Now, on this Chris Watts case, I've also seen a few other questions related to this, like, is it okay to feel empathy for somebody like Chris Watts or to feel sorry for him because he has life without parole? And additionally, is life without parole cruel and unusual? So Chris Watts, of course, is a real individual. And whenever I'm talking about somebody who is real, I mention that I'm not diagnosing them. I'm simply speculating on what could be happening in a situation like this. Now, we see here that there's this report in People magazine that Chris Watts wants to appeal his conviction or appeal his sentence. And I'm not a lawyer, but I talked to a couple I know just to make sure. And even with this certain regulation that he's looking at in terms of appealing this conviction or sentence, his chances of getting out of prison are extremely slim. Even if his appeal was heard, which I think is really unlikely, it's going to have the same result. He's still going to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And it's extremely costly to try to file these types of appeals. So for those worried that Chris Watts could appeal and would eventually get out of prison, it's highly unlikely. But outside of the legal aspects, what does a life sentence do to somebody's mental health? Long after interest in the Chris Watts case has subsided, he'll still be in prison. He'll still be suffering. And he will die there someday. So this really forces us to explore the nature of life without parole as a construct. In the case of Chris Watts, but also in the other cases we see. One in every 35 U.S. prisoners is serving life without the possibility of parole. It's been referred to as death by incarceration and the slow death penalty. And we see with a case like Chris Watts that perhaps this appeal route doesn't make any sense because it's never going to happen. But what about the governor of the state of Colorado, because that's where he was sentenced, commuting? or pardoning his sentence. Well, commutations and pardons are exceedingly rare. We see this study in 2005 that looked at the time frame from 1978 until the time the study was published. And in the study, they saw 2,500 offenders with life without parole in the state of California. And of these offenders, zero had their sentence commuted or pardoned. Now, again, that was at the time of publication, so 2005. But even up until the present time, I'm not aware of any prisoner sentenced to life without the possibility of parole who's had their sentence commuted or pardoned in California or in any other state. Now, interestingly, life without parole is actually a relatively new concept in the United States. In 1982, we see the number of states that had life without parole was about 21. In 1996, it was up to 34. And since then, we see that life without parole is an available sentencing option in every state except for Alaska, and it's available in the District of Columbia and in the federal system. So since 1982, we see this huge expansion 
of the use of this sentencing option. Now, in the United States, 50,000 people are serving life without the possibility of parole, and 3,200 of those individuals committed nonviolent crimes. Now, if we compare this to the entire rest of the world, we see kind of a shocking descriptive statistic. 50,000, again, the U.S., and it's estimated in the rest of the world there's less than 120 cases of individuals who have no possibility of parole. Now, I looked at that statistic and that source, and I'm a little bit skeptical, but even instead of less than 120, even if it was less than 12,000, which would be 100 times more than the less than 120 estimate we see, that still puts the United States way ahead in terms of the number of people they sentence to life without parole. It really makes the United States stand out quite a bit in this way. And we also see in the U.S. this ideological shift from rehabilitation toward policies that are really closer to deterrence, retribution, and incapacitation. So now moving over to the mental health component. Okay, so there's a lot of people sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, but are there any adverse effects from this? Does it really have severe mental health consequences? Well, the studies we see on this are really about long-term confinement, and I'll talk about how that's different than life without parole in a minute. If we look at the research literature, it has not demonstrated that the impacts of long-term confinement are severely deleterious. They've looked at areas like intellectual ability, personality, physical condition, and even interpersonal relationships, and there isn't really strong evidence that there's a broad-scale deterioration for prisoners sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So, of course, this is really surprising. We think of somebody in prison for life, especially life without parole, we would think, surely, there's some sort of mental health consequence to that that's drastic, that's much different than somebody serving a shorter sentence. Well, we see some exceptions. With people who are wrongly convicted, we see that over time they develop a hostile and mistrustful attitude toward the world. We also see more social withdrawal and feelings of hopelessness, and they always feel like they're being threatened. This is certainly understandable, considering somebody is convicted wrongly. That kind of makes sense that they would be upset and have kind of strong feelings about that. But for people outside this group, we see an inverse relationship. So this is a relationship where as one construct goes up, the other one goes down. We see an inverse relationship exist between time served and depression, anxiety, guilt, loneliness, boredom, and sleep disturbances. So the longer that somebody is in prison, the less they have these various symptoms. We also see, as somebody spends more time in prison, their self-esteem tends to increase. Again, even people with long sentences. Now, does this mean that life without parole isn't as bad as we thought? Well, kind of yes and no. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. 
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I mentioned long-term confinement. That's the area that's been studied. These sentences include sentences that have prison terms shorter than a life sentence. So the real difference here is hope. Somebody sentenced to a life sentence has some hope, and somebody sentenced to life without parole has no hope. So what we see here is that life without parole is an indeterminate sentence, and these are associated with a higher level of suffering, because the sentence doesn't end until the prisoner dies. So the permanency and indeterminacy of a life sentence has really been compared to receiving a diagnosis of a terminal illness. So again, it makes sense that somebody who has this sentence would have mental health consequences because of it. Now, we see that for prisoners that are new to life without parole, so in the initial stages of incarceration, We see this time is particularly difficult for life without parole inmates. They have a strong belief that they're going to be successful in appeal. They kind of hold on to this hope of appeals. And we know that this could have a denial component and potentially even a delusional component. And really interestingly, the hope of release, even though there is no hope of release, this is a powerful contributor to mental health, to somebody feeling better. So life without parole inmates are kind of active agents of finding meaning in their lives, largely based on a false hope. Again, more in the beginning of their sentence, in the initial stages of their sentence, which they usually conceptualize is about the first 10 years. So really with long-term confinement, when we see this lack of adverse results or effects, we shouldn't take this as an endorsement of the legitimacy of life without parole as a sentencing option. Rather, it's really a testament to the resiliency of human beings and a testament to the power of denial and delusions. So moving back to the Chris Watts case specifically, could he be contemplating appeals like we see reported in People magazine? Well, yes, and actually I would expect that he would be because this is the trend that we see in the research literature for people sentenced to life without parole. Moving to the question of, is it okay to feel empathy for somebody like Chris Watts? Well, this has a lot to do with what we mean by the word okay. Is it moral to understand his situation, to kind of feel for him in that way? I suppose. I don't really see a moral problem with it. Is it a good use of time? Well, to do it excessively probably isn't really a good use of time. Is it important for society? Like, is there a kind of a larger picture behind a case like the case of Chris Watts. Well, I think it is good that we contemplate these issues because we want to restrict how often something like life without parole is used. So I guess it could be important to society. 
But again, it may not be a good use of time. So I think those things have to be balanced. I certainly don't recommend spending a lot of time thinking about it, but we do have to have a degree of compassion even to the most heinous offenders, like Chris Watts and other murderers we see who are sentenced to life without parole. We want to be careful about how punitive we become as a society, and we want to make sure we still offer mental health resources to individuals who are in prison. With all this in mind, of course, though, there is still a danger, right? What happens with cases like this over time is that feelings tend to soften toward the offenders, and people tend to forget the victims. In essence, Chris Watts sentenced his whole family to death, and they had no recourse. They didn't have attorneys. They didn't have mental health advocates. They didn't have a law. Nobody knew what was happening when he was committing the crime. So he just acted as the judge, jury, and executioner. And here, he's now in a system where he has access to all these different remedies. Although, like I said, he's not getting out of prison. But there's still that very small chance. He still has that component of hope. Where, of course, for his family, all hope was wiped out. So we have to consider the dangerous elements of empathy in a situation like this. We want to remember what he did and also balance that with compassion. So society really wouldn't function if there were more people like Chris Watts out in the general population. So he needs to be in prison for life. And that's a matter of pragmatism, just being pragmatic, just being practical, not a matter of revenge. I don't have any animosity toward Chris Watts, and I know there are many people who don't in the mental health treatment community. We look at people like this as simply products of genetics and stressors and personality characteristics and all the things that go into mental health and human behavior. But still, we can lack anger, but still want justice. And that's where I think the life in prison part really comes in for somebody like Chris Watts. I think it would be destructive for society in general for him to be released at any point. So moving on to the last question, what about the construct of life without parole? Is it cruel and unusual? Does it represent cruel and unusual punishment? Well, outside of extreme cases like we see with Chris Watts, I would say generally life without parole is cruel. Now, unusual is kind of an odd word here because certainly we see a lot of it. Again, 50,000 prisoners. So it's become usual in a sense, right? It's now common. But that doesn't mean it isn't cruel. So I think the dilemma here is, yes, I don't think it's a good idea, but what choice do we have? That's really the problem. What's the alternative? I don't support the death penalty for a variety of reasons, including philosophical and theological reasons. But even if you get into just logical reasons, we know that with a death penalty, in the majority of cases and in the majority of states, death doesn't actually occur when somebody's sentenced to the death penalty. So increasingly, death row is the punishment for somebody sentenced to death. So I see the death penalty really on its way out anyway. So again, it kind of leaves us back with this problem with life without parole. That's really where we are. We're stuck. We don't have any good options. And we could look at options like releasing people after 20 years or 25 years. But I don't think the United States is really ready for that right now. The laws in the United States, the way they're set up now, are particularly punitive, and they don't change quickly. So we can advocate for change as a mental health treatment community if that's what we want, but I don't see anything changing with life without parole anytime soon. But it's still really an interesting question, 
And I think we need to kind of keep this question in the forefront as we deal with the intersection of mental health and the law and just really looking at justice, period. We have to keep in mind that we need to punish individuals and deter individuals from committing heinous crimes. But we have to look at what cost that comes at. So again, it's a dilemma and there's no easy answer for it. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.